Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, February 15th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. Christine Rosen is not with us today, but with us as always. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. I'm trying to do my best late night FM of the 1980s disc jockey voice today. You know, this is John Podhoritz with The Quiet Storm. And the Quiet Storm, of course, is the Rorschach test question of whether the impeachment trial that ended with a 57 43 vote represents uh, an unprecedented slap uh, at a uh, at Donald Trump and at a president the first time that such numbers have been registered in an impeachment trial for people, for uh, senators in the same party as the president. Uh, Seven of them voted to uh, convict. Or that he has survived and thrived uh, and demonstrated that his uh, control of the Republican Party is close to absolute and that the kinds of statements being made by people like uh, Marco Rubio uh, in explaining their refusal to vote for uh, conviction uh, are indications, and particularly the behavior of Lindsey Graham, which we can go into at greater length, are occasions for uh, just simply uh, the revelation that... uh, Donald Trump isn't going anywhere. His control of the party isn't going anywhere. And that, uh, in fact, that which did not kill him has made him stronger. I think before you even go into that, you need to go into the events over the weekend for those who weren't glued to the... Oh, that's, I'm sorry. You're right. Because I'm, I'm, I'm always too focused. I'm sort of focused on my own, you know, obsessions, which are, you know, where the conservatives are and everything. But... Um, it was the pretty shameful conduct by Chuck Schumer and the Democrats uh, in uh, on Saturday. No, one of rather shocking events over the course of the weekend, beginning on Friday night. <clears throat> um, and I'm very glad that I I was almost right to reserve reserve you know reservations about how this thing was going to play out um, because we did almost have some very shocking change of course. Um, late Friday night, we had a CNN report from people around Mike Pence, Mike Pence's team, saying that Donald Trump's defense uh, attorneys had actively misled the president about what Donald Trump knew and when he knew it regarding uh, the vice president's uh, relative danger on January 6th. And a uh, statement released by Congressman Jamie Herrera Butler, Butler, not sure how to pronounce her name. I but, think it's pronounced Butler. Yeah. Um, she had given a story to a local paper, some weeks ago uh, about what she learned on that day and and included a statement with quotes from um, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who recalled in a conversation he had with Donald Trump the day of that the president, you know, said that this were all Antifa and they're not really that, you're not really his supporters. And Mike uh, or Kevin McCarthy said, sir, they absolutely are. To which the president said, well, I guess they just care about the election more than you do. Um, suggesting that he was supportive of the protesters in this event. It was a, she didn't have to say that. She could have left it at the the local paper. She put it out in a press release and it caused a big stir and it forced house managers the morning after on Saturday, the day of acquittal, 
to say, we want witnesses. We want to depose um, Representative Butler and we want to, um, and Kevin McCarthy's a fact witness and we're going to have witnesses. And the, the, that was put to a vote for the Senate and it passed with a bipartisan support. And uh, everybody was ready to call witnesses and they were working out how this was going to go. And Republicans were blustering and threatening to subpoena the phone book. And Democrats were talking about how many other witnesses they're going to have. And they had rules established. And um, you, then you started to see Democratic members of the Senate give reports on the or statements on the record to reporters saying, you know, this is going to take a long time and it's going to be very uncomfortable and we don't know who we're going to get. Republicans want to muddy the waters. They were getting very uncomfortable with it as the hours went on and they simply punted it. Punted it. Um, everybody agreed that they, instead of calling witnesses, they just enter uh, this tweet, this statement from Representative Butler into the record and move on. And so they did. And they had a, uh, and they had a vote and it ended up, everybody expected there would be about four Republicans who would vote. Uh, for conviction, and they had a couple of surprise um, votes that got to seven, which is a pretty bipartisan rebuke. They need 10. They needed 10 more for conviction, but nobody expected they'd get there. And um, what was, what was, is very, two things, two, two um, observations from this one. It's particularly clarifying to see Democrats who have spent, you know, the last two years over the course of these two impeachments and cis Republicans are this block, you know, united phalanx blocking Donald Trump from the kind of scrutiny that he deserves. It's clarifying to see Democrats say that, you know, pretty demonstrate pretty clearly that they don't want to move forward with any real, uh, real effort to examine what happened here, um, because it would just, it would just take a while. And we need to confirm near a tandem. It's really important. And second is you saw people now like um, a representative or a senator uh, from Connecticut blocking on his name, not uh, Murphy, not Chris Murphy. Murphy, yes, who who is compelled now to do damage control around the COVID package, the COVID relief package, which is so important, so critically important that we couldn't pursue this impeachment because the only, only eggheads really care about history and precedent and all this nonsense. The real folks in the hinterland, they need this relief, man. And if you're not on board with it, then then you're part of the problem. This is what's really critical here. So now they're doing damage control around this all-important COVID package, which will raise expectations for its performance to just a level that can't be met, um, which I think is is really clever strategy on the part of Democrats here. And they deserve every ounce of uh, heartache they get from their base for sacrificing this moment. And they're going to get plenty of it. They're the technocratic Democrats, the technocratic left are pretty sure that nobody cares about impeachment. Everybody only cares about pocketbook issues, but they're going to spend a week having to deal with an angry left wing um, on, on their base who really wanted to see and had the opportunity to see accountability here and isn't going to get it. What I, th- I, I would just say, I, but just before you Abe, just say that I don't even think that it's the left versus the left. Uh, the left wants this, <clears throat> you know, Keynesian on steroids stuff to go on. And, the, uh, you know, and sort of like uh, they think that what they're seeing is the birth of a new progressive governing coalition and they want to get to it as soon as possible. This This was the animating passion of the Democratic Party for the last four years. Trump. Trump's bad, Trump's evil, Trump, the resistance to Trump, doing something about Trump. And uh, they they were the ones who put the kibosh 
on the real possibility. And I, I still think Noah, you were, I was wrong to poo poo your uh, optimism because I think that what happened on Friday night with Herrera Butler's press release suggested that we had moved and taken a couple of steps into the unknown. And the unknown means not, oh, he'll get, he'll get uh, acquitted anyway. It means the unknown. I think three people voted to convict him based on that alone. Now, maybe the the other 10 are, are were a bridge too far but we just we don't know that and maybe it's terrible to shut down the senate and not make it possible for it to do any business and all of that but we don't know that and we don't know what rules could have been promulgated to make it possible for them to do business in the morning and then do the trial in the afternoon or something like that or have different committees take different depositions we don't know that schumer panicked and shut it down. And so uh, there's a kind of uh, interrupt us here. And it's not for us. Like, I, you know, I don't need the satisfaction of seeing this happen. But granted, the election is the ultimate, you know, sanction. But... Eight. No, it's it's far worse than that. I'm sorry, just briefly. It's far worse than all that. Everybody thinks now. Everybody says, we have to move on. We're going to move on. It's time to move on. We need to heal and move on and move on. Um, but by opening the possibility here of witnesses, because there is testimony yet to hear and there are events that are unclear that need to be uh, explored, and this is a bipartisan now vote on the record from senators saying that same thing, that there's stuff we don't know here and we need to learn it, we will never move on. This is an unsolved murder. Well, this is- It's an open wound. Yeah, but that's connected to what I was going to say, which is I think what's sort of the most depressing aspect of this for me is the make it up as you go along part of the um, procedural process. It's like, you know, part of this was supposed to be about um, restoring order and, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, an objective approach to, to justice and procedure and whatnot. And then to see this actual vote on calling witnesses and then going, eh, forget it. It, 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 it sort of puts, it just sort of floats everything back into this kind of state of we're, we're untethered to, to anything still. Yeah. I mean, I would put it this way. It's like uh, the last four years have suggested, I'm not going to, you know, like do chapter and verse that, uh, when things can be done badly in Washington, they're, they're going to be done badly. And in fact, they're going to be done worse than you expect. They're going to be done. Even though you already expect them to be done badly, it's going to be worse. And uh, this was that. Yeah. They, they, they innovated. The worst that could have happened is what happened, which is something happened to change this from being a pageant of, partisanship into something else and then it was quashed right before our eyes on Saturday morning in pursuit of leftist uh, goals in you know left immediate leftist goals and the smart set of the political you know, watchers 
So yeah, we're for, gonna forget about this in a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a month, maybe six months. Nobody's gonna care about impeachment. It's all gonna be about COVID, 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 and economic relief and schools, and that's you know the kitchen table issues, back pocket issues. All, nobody really cares about this sort of thing, and nobody's gonna vote this way in 2022, of course. But this will never go away now. This will be with us forever. There will be no definitive resolution on this. Even if there's some sort of a blue ribbon commission to investigate this sort of thing, which isn't even on the horizon. It is not just that. It's also that um, Donald Trump isn't going anywhere. And this gets to the questions I raised at the beginning. Donald Trump isn't going anywhere. And Mitch McConnell made that extremely peculiar speech uh, after he voted to acquit Trump saying somebody else really needs to punish him now. Some court somewhere needs to punish him. I can't do it. We can't do it. Somebody's got to take him out. Take him out. Nobody is going to take him out. He's not going anywhere, and he's not going anywhere because Mitch McConnell wouldn't take him out. And this is the, this we're, we're getting back now to 2015, 2016, and all kinds of the weakness of the party, the weakness of the parties in general, the weakness of the institutions and all of that. Um, after the election, November, whatever, what was the date? And I can't remember now, November 3rd? Okay. When Trump refused to concede and started talking about how the election was stolen and I had conversations with various Republicans and pundits and things like that, and the idea was this will be over in a week. They're just going to let him burn out. They're going to let it burn out. They're going to, you know, they're going to say he's got the right to do X, Y, and Z. Let him have his moment. You know, he's like a caged animal. He'll tire himself out and fall asleep in the corner. Don't worry. And that didn't happen. And now McConnell's saying, leave him to heaven. You know, the Wall Street Journal editorial page is saying he's not going to be the nominee in 2024, but the party still needs to, you know, deal with his legacy, but he's not going to be the nominee. I, there is no reason at this moment to think that he is not going to be the nominee in 2024. None, except age. And I suppose potential conviction for some kind of a real estate scam or something like that. Although even there, even there, it's the Republican party that is going to pick who's the Republican nominee, not, you know, not the media. And they are not, they will look at any prosecution of Donald Trump here on in as a, as a political act by the deep state and by conventional opinion to go after him because, he's who he is and they like him and this is going to harden his appeal. So I don't know that he's going to run, but this kind of weird idea that you can move beyond him when, when you didn't take the steps to move beyond him or that this is somehow going to happen naturally, like Trump's idea that COVID was just going to vanish. Abe, what do you think? Well, yesterday, Lindsey Graham said that Donald Trump is the most vibrant member of the Republican Party today. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Does, it, does, does that sound like he's like he's going away? Lindsey's going down there to play golf with him. Talk about uh, 
2022. The future of the Republican Party, defining the Republican Party in 2022, lobbying for Laura Trump to run for right. U.S. Senate in North Carolina. Shocking. I mean, it, it's shocking. Perplexing. Well, I mean, uh, trying to trying to figure out what Lindsey Graham is up to is has now become a kind of um, a bizarre parlor game. I, I mean, uh, you know, is does all of this indicate that he actually has come to really like Trump personally and like it? You know, this was this was John McCain's closest friend in the Senate. The man who didn't even want to lower flags to half staff when McCain died. The man who said McCain, he didn't like, you know, uh, people who were shot down. All of that. And Lindsey Graham, of course, himself said Trump can't be the nominee. He's terrible, blah, whatever. So you can change your mind on that. But um, the fact that he is sort of, you know, become his biggest pal, that's, I, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know. I don't know Lindsey Graham and I don't know what to make of Lindsey Graham. Um, but it's a, he's either suggestive of this general conversion of the Republican party into this a personality cult, um, or he is, and, and that's the question, like, is that what he is? Or he genuinely likes Trump and thinks that Trump is the future and this is the only way to own the libs and all of that. So let's take, let's move Lindsey Graham to one side and talk about Marco Rubio. And a general line, uh, Senator Kramer from one of the Dakotas, I can't remember which Dakota, I apologize, sent a question to the desk uh, during the question session in, you know, that was joined by you know, I don't know, Senator Danes and Senator this way. And, and it was, isn't, to the Trump lawyers, you know, isn't this just a way of disenfranchising the 74 million people who voted for Trump? Rubio said something very much like this in his statement explaining his vote to acquit. This is a very uh, interesting line because it is totally morally, politically, and intellectually indefensible and corrupt. The voters are not at issue here. The voters have nothing to do with what happened on January 6th. The voters voted in the weeks leading up to November 3rd, and they voted, and he didn't win. And the only way that you can say that they were disenfranchised is if you say that the election results were fraudulent. But by the way, Rubio doesn't say the election results are fraudulent. And I, I don't believe, you know, I, I'm not sure that Kramer said that the election results were fraudulent. So what is this pulling in the 74 million and making it as though impeaching Trump for this question of whether or not he... Uh, incepted and provoked a riot that led to deaths and hundreds of injuries and the breaching of the Capitol and the effort to interrupt the peaceful transfer of power. What does that have to do with his voters? That's, that's just rabble rousing in the worst. I, you know, I don't want to be like some kind of Pollyanna, but what the hell I mean, I mean, when you put no. it that way, it's on the same continuum as stop the steal and revving everybody up to sack the Capitol. 
it's, it's the same sort of populist table bounding. It's implicitly that. Mitch McConnell's very directly addressed this in his extremely bizarre attack on Donald Trump after voting to acquit him, saying that people who did this, sort of implicitly indicting his fellow members, his fellow Republicans in the conference, are using these voters, these 74 million voters, as a human shield to prevent anybody from criticizing Donald Trump at all, which is a cult. It's cultist. These people are adhering to a cult of personality. So let me let me uh, ask you one question, and then and then we can sort of move on from this. Um, Lindsey Graham, uh, in his in this really quite incendiary interview with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday yesterday, said he just doesn't see how, given all of this, how Kamala Harris is not impeached in twenty twenty three. So that's a cutesy way of saying that you know Joe Biden is going to leave office and Kamala Harris will be president and then she'll get. Here's my question to you. I, I think I even brought this up last week. What are my thoughts about the like impeachment frenzy that gripped the resistance in late 2016 and never let up was what's going to happen here is that impeachment is now going to become just a political tool that every president is going to be impeached if the if the if the house is in the hands of the of the opposing party from here on in so trump was impeached twice and let's say republicans win the house back in 2023 and it's like we need to show them so then they'll impeach biden or harris and then it'll go back and all this Here's my question. Is, is that right? Or do you look at what happened here and say, why on earth should we go through this? What good did it do? What good did it do? The, did the Democratic House no good to impeach Trump in early 2020. They lost 15 seats in November. It clearly did them no good because their own Senate screwed them. Democratic Senate screwed the House impeachment by refusing to call the witnesses once there was actually a vote to call witnesses. Why would you go through this again if you are a newly minted House Republican majority in 2023? Or is it just that these things just follow uh, their own logic and they happen because they have to happen because of the emotional frenzy that grips a party at some moment or other? Well, you know... Part of the horror of what's going on with our politics, particularly with the, how it's affecting the parties, is that the thought about uh, the strategic or tactical benefits of a particular move to a party are now no longer really front and center, center in any decision. I mean, Noah wrote a, a post last week about state-level Republican um, parties. Um, and, you know, part of the, the point of that was that gripped by this frenzy – they have lost sight entirely of, or, or, or they just don't care about votes and losing votes in, in, in the, in this process of um, sort of like emotional, um, all activism, all the time, all, all revenge uh, at any cost uh, that if that is the order of the day, then, then yeah. What, what do they care if it, if it puts them at uh, some sort of disadvantage or, or just kind of stalls them out? I know. I guess it just looks. It's like it's like um, it's literally the line from Animal House, right? 
what we need is a futile and stupid gesture, and we're just the guys to do it. I mean, is that what our politics is going to grip our politics? Our futile and stupid gestures that also drain this unprecedented thing that had only happened once before 1998 and has now happened three times since 1998, uh, drain it of all of its meaning and ultimately make it all but impossible for it ever to be used as an appropriate, as a sanction. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, it's not even really about impeachment because this occurred, this, this trend started before impeachment, but that post that a references describes state level parties. And we have another addition now is um, Senator Burr <clears throat> from North Carolina who voted for conviction is going to be um, censured by his state uh, level Republican party. And you can go down the states, you know, half a dozen of them. And it's not just that they resent impeachment, but they are, you know, calling the the attack on the Capitol uh, you know, a, a false flag operation in a resolution that was approved by the Oregon um, State Republican Party, censuring their members up and down the line for a variety of other offenses that have little to do with Donald Trump, but everything to do with just representing this sort of uh, bulwark against um, whatever Democrats want to do it, whatever they want to do it for any particular reason. And even up to and including, obviously, the Arizona state legislature, which censured its own sitting Republican governor to say nothing of the last Republican to win a federal office in that state, um, Jeff Flake. It's not about winning elections anymore, which is all parties are but, supposed to do. But they don't do anything else well. But now they've convinced themselves that they have to be some sort of a vehicle for this personality cult, which they're not going to do well either. There's only one thing that political parties are designed to do. I keep saying this. And then and it was over the minute that they doubled down and, um, and rallied around Donald Trump after he lost. Right. Well, see, there's a very the interesting point is. Senator Cassidy gets censured by the East Baton Rouge Parish uh, Republican Party committee. So Senator Cassidy himself got, I don't know, four million votes. The East Baton Rouge Parish Republican Committee uh, is a bunch of people who, you know, get coffee together, and the ones who work hardest and spend mo- in a, more more time stuffing envelopes or doing whatever it is that you now do, because I don't think anybody stuffs envelopes anymore, makes them up. So ordinarily, you would say, "Well, this is a an incredible imbalance of power." Like, you know, Cassidy is the choice of the people of Louisiana in the millions. And here you got some, you know, guys in a room saying, we're going to officially censure you. But the nature of the way news travels now is it levels them. It's like, here's, here's John Cassidy, Senator, and then here's a guy in Baton Rouge. And they're kind of the same. They're kind of at the same level. Cassidy says, I voted to convict Donald Trump because he's guilty. And then somebody in Louisiana says, how dare you? You can't say that. Right. Fine. The guy, anyone in Louisiana can say anything. People can write letters to the other. can do this. The news elevates the Baton Rouge people. Or let's even say a whole state party. It's the same thing. What constitutes a state party? It's a bunch of people, a couple hundred get together in a room, nominate a chairman, have a vice chairman, have some committees. It's not thousands. It's not tens of thousands. 
They don't have any popular support. They're not supposed to have popular support. It's elected officials who have popular support. But they become some kind of a an avatar for some inchoate set of opinions. And, and that lowers and levels the meaning of winning an election in the United States. That's what happens when you make Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who got 15,000 votes in a primary and became the most famous Democratic congressman over time, or, or, or Marjorie Taylor Greene. They, what, there is some, the distorting prism of, of, of contemporary news gathering and news, uh, I don't know what, what you would call, promulgating, um, creates this fascinating condition where it's like, well, I mean, who is, uh, who is John Cassidy after? Oh, he's the guy who got censured by Republicans in his state. And of course, this is good for liberals in the media because they want to foment and promulgate an idea that the Republican Party is in a civil war and is killing itself. And it's good for the Baton Rouge Republicans because they get famous. The only people, the person it's not good for is the guy who was elected to make that choice on on Saturday about whether he was going to impeach or convict and spent years running for office, going to every county, speaking at fish fries and Lincoln and pancake breakfasts and, you know, doing all of that and garnering support and then getting himself into office. It's a really, um, you know, of all the distorting prisms, this elevation of the, of the envelope stuffer, not that the envelope stuffer isn't an important person in politics, but he's not the Senator who gets 4 million votes. And um, can I talk to you guys now about comfort food? Uh, because right now I could use some, given how wrought up I've become. Uh, and I, that's why I want to talk to you about Moinkbox. Uh, because Moinkbox is a, a provider of uh, beef, lamb, pastured pork, and chicken, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, grass-fed, grass-finished, and it's delivered direct to your door helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. So this is comfort food that's good for you, good for the environment, and good for small business and uh, and and uh, a real blow against, you know, faceless big business. Uh, their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. So sign up at moinkbox.com slash commentary to get a year of ground beef for free and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month and cancel any time. Moink was founded by an eighth-generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Host Kevin O'Leary said it's the best bacon he's ever tasted and Jamie Simonoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in Moink. They guarantee you'll say, oink, oink, I'm just so happy I got moinked. So join the moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash commentary right now, and listeners to this show get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash commentary. 
So just to continue in the vein of uh, crushing porosity, uh, the there's an interesting fight inside the uh, nascent Biden administration between the White House and the Centers for Disease Control, and the White House, as one might expect, won the fight. Uh, new CDC director Rochelle Walensky said said there's uh, the science says that schools should reopen, and um, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki disagreed, said that was a private sentiment on her part. And this um, this administration that uh, believes in science... Wait, it was a private statement that was given in the James Brady briefing room to reporters, transcribed, and posted on the White House as an official transcript. So right. it's, if that was just, you know, an offhanded remark, it was rather official in its capacity. Right. Um so uh, the so what happened here is that um, we have the CDC press conference and the CDC director admitting uh, that lobbying groups were involved in changing the recommendations that the CDC was going to promulgate in terms of school guidelines. Remember, we followed the science. Supposedly, we follow the science. Here is what um, here is what they said. They said that uh, these changes, quote, must be based on a thorough review of what the science tells us works and an understanding of the lived experiences, challenges, and perspectives of school staff and teachers, parents, and students. Can we just digress briefly? <clears throat> because anytime anybody uses the word lived experience which is a redundancy, is an expression of your fealty to progressive ethos. It's like uh, saying my truth, which is right. nonsense. Anybody who says my truth is, a, is reflecting their fealty to a political cause, not their understanding of proper grammar, um, which is very much what's... what's every time I hear that expression, lived experience, yeah. it's just like, it's like saying price point. Well, here's another. So the important. Uh, so one of the people who helped write the guidelines is Donna Harris Aikens, uh, newly minted Department of Education official, um, uh, who came to the Department of Education after 14 years as a senior policy director at the National Education Association, the largest teachers union in the country. Uh, here is what uh, she said at the press conference. Uh, uh, no, my presence here is not a message to anyone. My employer is the U.S. Department of Education, and I represent their views. We have talked to a variety of stakeholders and look forward to continuing our robust engagement with all sorts of stakeholders, not only in the school community, but in the community at large. That includes superintendents, principals, civil rights groups, and all sorts of other folks. So... The guidance on reopening schools based on the science now involves bringing in civil rights groups as stakeholders. Either the science says that you are unlikely to get COVID from being in a school building or it doesn't. Lived experience and the views of civil rights groups and stakeholders. This is an astonishing admission. I mean, I don't know who's going to make, and you know, and this really goes to this question of, 
are we seeing here the creation of the next we've been spending 40 years thinking that education was going to be a wedge issue in the United States since the release of the nation at risk uh, department of education survey that said that American kids are falling behind and not learning because basically the professionalization of education has destroyed education and Republicans and conservatives have been thinking, you know, parents are going to rise up. They're not going to stand for this and all this. And it never happens. So all that happens is that more and more money go to teachers unions who claim that they need the money to help educate and the numbers don't get any better and they get more and more money and more and more staff and more and more this. Okay. But this new wrinkle of having uh, no one in school and creating a new reality in which it is going to be, it appears optional for teachers to be in the classroom if they ever feel unsafe, like during a flu outbreak. Or what if a kid gets chicken pox in their classroom or something? And so therefore, they'll just be set up at home with a computer, there'll be a screen in a classroom, and they'll just go and do it from there. I mean, that's what you're outlining is the optimistic scenario. That's not what we're the future we're staring down. I'm talking about the the perpetual future, not the current, not the immediate. Well, I don't see any way out of this current existing condition. The CDC guidelines that we got out of this administration on Friday night were more restrictive than anything we got out of the Trump administration in August and September out of the CDC. They said that any level of transmission whatsoever is cause cause to to uh, adhere to this hybrid model where you have kids in school, maybe two days a week at most. Any transmission, which means if this disease is not eradicated, which it won't be, because we've never done that before with the exception of smallpox. We've never eradicated a disease. Polio is still around. So this is just going to be something that we have forever. And then you saw the CDC director yesterday, John, he pointed this out to us, say that, well, no, we can't really, there's not going to be a safe environment for kids because what about asthma? What about children with asthma? What about mold? Sometimes there's mold. And you can't open a school if there's mold. I went to school with mold. Everybody who's listening to this went to school with mold. No, but Noah, even if the issue is that schools have mold, right? Or that, you know, it's in, these old inner city buildings are screwed up and they need better ventilation systems. That has nothing to do with the current crisis that has shut the schools down. Nothing. Whatsoever. So you so want to have, a, you have for... a debate about spending a billion, you know, a trillion dollars retrofitting schools with new ventilation systems? Go ahead. As Christine loves to point out, there was hundreds of millions of dollars in the first COVID relief package to be sent to schools to deal with ventilation systems that hasn't been spent in many of the school districts in the United States. So a lot of this is just, you know, malarkey. But I do think that what we're seeing here is a is a a weird new kind of power grab, uh, unprecedented. I mean, I, I don't know. We are being asked to create a new condition under which the people who are supposed to run education get to decide at any given moment that for their sake the schools are to be shut down for their sake because they're worried about getting sick because we've now established kids don't get really hardly don't get sick from COVID. 
So uh, now, so an entire educational year is lost because adults get it and kids don't get it, but kids might transmit it to adults or adults will transmit it to each other. That never ends. Transmission of disease in a building will never end. Now that now that everybody is so hyper-conscious of this idea that, you know, things travel indoors and hit people through spit and all of that, how, where does this go? Because I, I just... Well, immediately, I don't, yeah. there are, according to the new gar- guidelines, there are schools that are open now that will have to hybridize or, or go to at-home learning. Well, but the guidelines are not um, determinative, right? They're only guidelines. They have no they, they have no enforcement, whatever. The whole idea was she came in and it was the science, settled science, that the schools should reopen. And politics but, came in and like Bambi versus Godzilla, the big foot of, of democratic interest groups squashed Rochelle Walensky, but good right in front of our eyes. But it's, it's, it's somebody had a good analogy. It's not, it's not as though in the affordable care act, for example, I forget who I'm stealing this from. They had a good observation in the affordable care act. Didn't say that you can't keep your doctor, even though that was, everybody's stated intentions. It was just how the, the law was structured that would create the incentives that would produce a system in which your doctor would be out of your network. It wasn't, it wasn't anybody's stated intentions. So to the extent that this, that people say, well, this is going to result in, in more hybridization and more school closures. It's not because it mandates it or there's teeth to any of this. It's just that it creates a permission structure that people are going to use. Um. I mean, one one often says this can't stand, and we've been saying this for a year about COVID stuff, and it stood. So one should never say that things can't stand when clearly they can stand. But seriously, how how can this stand? I mean, there there's a there's something fundamentally illogical here. We are we are going to empower an education system in which. Uh, teachers are not going to have to stand in front of students and teach. If that's the case, then we should, then the 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 end the logical end result of this is the complete destruction of the public school system, and the education by uh, you know MOOCs by 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 massive online courses that kids take at home or in pods where they sit together in a room that's rented by their parents with. 12 other kids and parents rotate in and then they all watch a screen together because the notion that we're going to spend, I don't know how much we spend in the United States for, you know, um, uh, upwards close to a trillion dollars on education every year. We're going to keep doing that when they're not going to be in a, why, why would we do that? Entropy? Entropy degrades. Ultimately, the whole point about entropy is that the system can't can't go on. Not it goes on, and then it it degrades itself, and then it destroys itself. Um, and that's the fun part of entropy, I guess. Um, but listen, guys, uh, shifting gears a little bit because we obviously have an HR problem in the United States with the teachers. 
uh, and if we're the HR department, we got some issues here. And, you know, when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR managers' salaries aren't cheap. An average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to get them a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day all for just $99 a month. Month Month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary. Spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. And now, just because I haven't depressed you enough, uh, let me just um, share with you a couple of uh, other little pieces of news that broke over the weekend, shall I? Shall I? Um, Ilhan Omar has been named vice chair of the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee. Um, And uh, House Democrats have uh, hired at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee uh, Julian Tatro as a senior advisor for diversity and inclusion. Tatro, known for appearing in the 2019 PBS documentary series College Behind Bars about a group of inmates trying to earn their degrees, through New York State's Bard Prison Initiative. Through the program, Tatro got a bachelor's degree while serving a six-year sentence for racketeering conspiracy. At the time of that 2011 conviction, Tatro had already been doing time for shooting two rival gang members in 2006. Described at the time as a trigger man for the original gangsta killer street gang that terrorized Albany, this is all from a New York Post story, Tatro confessed to the shootings and to the razor slashing of another victim in 2002, as well as to dealing drugs. Tatro was freed in 2017 and has since become an advocate for increasing educational opportunities for inmates. And he was in a thing where he debated the Harvard debate team and they won. And uh, so there's that. So um, basically, uh, a person who shot two people and... uh, and uh, slashed a third, razor slashed a third, while making $12,000 a month as a drug dealer, uh, is now going to be employed by the committee that uh, tries to get Democrats elected. Now, here's the question. Does the fact that he served his time, he served his sentence and got released and all of that, are we supposed to just turn a blind eye to his behavior uh yeah i don't know i mean i I mean you know it's it's bizarre it's it's depressing but your last question i mean what does it mean to be uh to have served one's time you know um how is how is it supposed to affect how we how we assess them i think it's a it's a crazy damaging decision to, to, to pick him. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't think that belongs in the same category as the Omar thing, uh, in part because the, there's 
we have a capacity for redemption, a redemptive arc here that has perhaps been met. I don't know enough about the gentleman to say one way or the other. Uh, in, in Omar's case, there has been no redemption because there has been no uh, no uh, apology sought or offered. Um, she is still very much an offender. So these these two things are don't exist in the same category to me. What if uh, he had posted uh, something on 4chan in, uh, <laughs> in the last 10 well, years? Well, if he had a Gab or a Parler account, then he would be truly beyond the pale and uh, unre- un- irredeemable. I mean, so the issue is, is this a legitimate story i mean i think every anything is a legitimate story like it's all a question of whether or not uh, at a time uh, of, of of rising crime uh, the democratic congressional campaign committee uh wants to hand its republican counterparts uh a, a, you know a giant issue by saying that uh you know one of the people who's helping them on uh, criminal justice issues shot two people and razor slashed another while having been a drug dealer uh, I mean, you know, it's true. Uh, he confessed all these things, so it's true. It's There's no question that it's a true fact. And then it's just a question of whether it's an interesting thing because is this a political liability or is it not a political liability? I mean, um, are, are, are Democrats blinded to the fact that they are sitting on a razor's edge of power in the House and that uh, crime, as we lay out in Christine Rosen's uh, s- splendid piece that you can read at commentarymagazine.com, accepting crime, abolishing punishment, that crime is going to be a big fat target for Republicans politically in 2022. Okay, well, I just thought I'd lay that out. And uh, in terms of Ilhan Omar, I mean, you know, I guess she's. She's got to be on some committee, uh, you know, um, unlike Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, who isn't on any committees. Uh, she gets to be on committees. Um, I guess it's all about the Benjamins in her case. There you go. Then. Um, okay. So uh, sorry to, sorry to depress you uh, on this, uh, on this uh, weird uh, holiday that celebrates presidents, uh, which we shouldn't celebrate. You know, we should celebrate Lincoln. We should celebrate Washington. We shouldn't celebrate presidents in general because that means you're also celebrating Nixon. You're celebrating, you know, I don't know, Chester Allen Arthur. Like, we don't really need to celebrate them, celebrate presidents in general. So uh, presidents are employees. They get big pensions and they get libraries and that should be enough for them rather than a whole national holiday. Anyway, so with that churlishness, and this show of deep crushing morosity, uh, maybe we'll be back in a better mood tomorrow for Noah and Abe and the absent Christine Rosen. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.